I will be in Acts 23 and 24 this morning, and we're going to start with a word of prayer. Russ, would you please lead us? Father, we thank you for uh, the Lord's Day. Thank you that we can be together as your people. And, uh, we pray for this time now as we study your word, uh, open our eyes and soften our hearts to what you would have in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just looking back at Acts 22, how upset is the crowd at Paul in Jerusalem, and why are they so upset? Right, so they thought they brought Gentile in and defiled the temple, and so how upset did they get? There was a riot, and they wanted to. Put him to death. They wanted to kill him, <laughs> and uh, they started just beating him for we guessed maybe ten minutes. And if you figure, let's say fifty hits a minute, that's at least five hundred punches <laughs> that Paul had before he's going to address the hostile crowd. So he's probably looking a little messed up by then. And as Paul starts talking, he refers to how he persecuted Christians. How serious was he in his persecution of Christians? Zealous. To the death. He wanted to kill Christians. And he also was willing to travel hundreds of miles to go round some more up and punish them. What were some examples we came up with of people who respond with the phrase, but Lord? We had some Bible characters. Moses. Moses, yeah. Jonah. Jonah. Ananias. Ananias, good. Mm-hmm. We also had Paul. Um, in the text last week, he thought, uh, Jesus, remember, told him, Go to Jerusalem, he's saying, or get out of Jerusalem, he's saying, but, but I'd be such a great witness here. Look, they know my story. And he's like, no, go. Um, Peter, um, when Jesus says he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem, you know, forbid it, Lord, and argued with him. And then Jeremiah, when God called him to be a prophet, he said, but Lord, I'm just young and I don't know how to speak. So our conclusion then, and, and also us, right? <laughs> There's things God tells us to do in his word, and we might say, but Lord, it's hard, or but Lord, I, it's not the easiest thing to do, or whatever, and um, we need to fill in the sentence like this. What is the only valid word in a two-word sentence when the second word is Lord? Yes. Yes. Very good. So we can remember that much. We'll be doing well. Um, so any questions or comments on what we saw last week in Acts 22 before we jump into 23? Okay, would somebody please read the first five verses of Acts 23? Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfect, perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, 
God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit? Do you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of the people. Okay, so why does Paul get hit in the mouth again? <laughs> he had a whole bunch of them yesterday. Um, this is the next day, so he's starting to heal up. Um, why does he get hit this time? So he says, yeah, I have a good conscience, so that's seemed to somebody like the high priest, that's out of line, so he had him hit. So how does Paul react to getting hit? Yeah, that was a little strong, wasn't it? It's kind of salty to come back like that. Um, and then he finds out, oh, that was the high priest, so then what does he do when he finds that out? He just says he shouldn't speak evil of a ruler. Right, so he kind of backtracks and apologizes and says, oh, I didn't realize it wasn't the high priest. Yeah, he's a white wise wall, but maybe I shouldn't say that about him. So, interesting story, isn't it? You just learn more about Paul, for example. Like, he didn't just turn the other cheek and say, okay, hit me again. And it's like, hey, you can't do that. That's unlawful. And like, oh, okay. guess I shouldn't speak that way at this point. All right, let's keep going then. Six through ten, he's going to start telling his story. We're in Acts 23, 6 through 10. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute came, became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, so what does Paul notice about those who are making up this council? So this is roughly the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Israel. These are the big leaders, religiously and politically, that make these kind of calls. And what does Paul notice about the makeup of the group? Half and half. Yeah, it's a split crowd. Um, comparable, not exact parallel, but uh, somebody addressing Congress and noticing, oh, there's Republicans here and there's Democrats here. They're very different. So what's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? And Luke fills us in because he knows Theophilus might not be up on his Jewish groups. 
Um, what's the difference? The Sadducees didn't really believe in like angels or spirits or the resurrection. Okay. And the Pharisees did. Good. So Pharisees believe in supernatural things, and Sadducees deny anything supernatural. Um, so very secular worldview, basically, <laughs> compared to a, a biblical worldview that there is a God in heaven and he intervenes in this world and there, he does raise people from the dead and there are angels and spirits. So Paul capitalizes on that and says, um, basically, what, what is this trial really about as far as he's concerned? Resurrection from the dead. Yeah, he, he says, this is not really about me and the person I allegedly brought to the temple. It's really about, do you believe in the resurrection or not? So, uh, what kind of reaction did at least some of the Pharisees have about that? They agree with Paul. Right. Because they believe the resurrection too, and so... What's their conclusion? At least find nothing wrong in this. Right. Maybe he's okay. Maybe he really did hear from an angel. <laughs> you know? Who are we to say something supernatural didn't happen? So they're kind of lining up with him. It's like, yeah, we believe supernatural things like you and these other Sadducees over here don't. So, okay, we're on your side, Paul. <clears throat> and then how does that go over with the rest of the group? Ascension became violent. Yeah. So this is the Supreme Court, very dignified, right? And they're ready to go to blows uh, with each other. And then what does the commander think they might do with Paul as the guy in the middle? Terrible part. Terrible part. (laughs) So it is all decorum is gone. It's like, let's get this guy. And let's, you know, go after the people on the other side of the aisle that see reality different than we do. So it's just kind of chaos. And uh, so that's how far he gets there. So any comments or questions? Okay, let's read verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay. So where have we seen appear <coughs> to Paul before to encourage him? Okay, let's go back to chapter 18. And would somebody please read verse 9 and 10. So this is in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Okay, so again, just the Lord's compassion to visit Paul when he very well might be afraid, because he keeps getting persecuted everywhere he goes, and here he is now in Jerusalem, and... um, Jesus appears again, and uh, how does he encourage Paul this time? (coughs) 
that his purpose is not you know his, his use or his destiny or whatever. God's purpose for him is not over yet. Okay, good. So why might Paul be thinking that? <laughs> what happened the day before? He got beat to a pulp. <laughs> Here's a group of people that are putting him on trial and want to tear him apart. And so wouldn't it be reassuring to have the Lord say, uh, these people in Jerusalem are not going to have the last word I do, and I will get you to Rome. You're not going to die in Jerusalem, even though you came kind of close. <laughs> That's I have a plan. I like how you put that. There's a plan, and it's not done yet. Said John Patton it says we're immortal until God's done with His purposes for us, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's like nothing can ultimately harm you because I have destined you for an appointment in Rome. So what's interesting about that? Let's go back to 1921. Can I say one thing? Please do. To me, I don't think, if I was Paul, I'd be like, that's not reassuring. It's going to go happen again in Rome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't want to go to Rome. Yeah, why do I want to go to Rome? Yeah, and guess what happens in Rome? He doesn't just do sightseeing. What does he do? (laughs) He gets his head cut off in Rome. So, yeah, he's going to be martyred in Rome. Um, So, yeah, in Make a mixed message. Like it's not over yet, but it is going to be over. Well, but Rome. just it's probably going to happen again. You're going to testify for me again uh-huh. in Rome. So it's reassuring the Lord's with him, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> mean like free pass. Like, yeah, yeah. you're going to go to a beach and just relax. Right. <laughs> but he knew it was coming. That's right. And right. Because tell us more about in, that. In the previous chapters, there was multiple indications that trouble and imprisonment and death was coming for Paul and, and people in the church that he, he visited believers along the way to Jerusalem and they were trying to say don't go right right said, this this is what I have to do I'm, I'm following okay. where the Lord is leading good good and even before the other people telling him that who told Paul about all the suffering he would endure right speaking on behalf of Jesus said um you're going to endure all this suffering. You're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and you're going to experience a lot of suffering. So he knew up front this is his destiny. And again, not that it would be fun, even if you know what's coming, but it's reassuring to know the Lord's going to be with us, right? Pastor? Yes? And the fact that Jesus is shown there, and he's... Yeah. That, you know... That is so cool, isn't it? Yeah. Personal and loving and supporting him and encouraging him. Right. The fact that he's there. And I think most of us, I hope you've had a taste of that. Uh, maybe not Jesus appearing to you <laughs> um, visibly, but just a sense of his nearness. Uh, that's just a special, like, wow, he drew near. Um, and it's just a peace that you have, just reassuring the Lord is with you. You know, during this trial, or for whatever's coming, or whatever it might be, that you just have this special sense that he drew near. That's different than just the average time. You know, when we have our quiet time, or mostly you know what I'm talking about there. So very good. Any other thoughts or comments on this experience so far for Paul? Oh, I think let's go to 1921. I almost forgot. It also just shows that Jesus is in charge. He's in control. So we take courage. It's not like, oh boy, I don't know what's coming. You're going to go to Rome. It could get bad. Just a 
courage. Mm. It's going to be hard, but take courage. Yeah, I mean, the last thing in Matthew that Jesus says is all authority has been given to be in heaven and on earth. <laughs> you know, so when the one who has all authority in heaven and earth says, take courage, I'm going to get you to Rome, nothing will keep us from getting to Rome. I mean, it's, he is Lord. He will make that happen. So to know, from, I mean, it's not just, you know, good luck or may the force be with you or, you know, hang in there. It's, be of good courage because I'm going to get you to Rome and I'm Lord. So I think that's a good point. 1921, would somebody read that, please? Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul wanted to go Rome to Rome, this is before some of this stuff started getting dicey. So isn't it interesting in the providence of God, he is going to get to Rome, but it's not on the, the cruise ship he thought he might be going on to get there. It's, it's going to be under much different circumstances um, and a much different outcome. He's not just going to go plant a church in Rome or do the things he thought in 1921. He's going to bear testimony before Caesar and get martyred, but he is going to get to Rome. So I just think it's an interesting blending of he wants to go to Rome, and that will happen. It's just going to look a lot different than what he thought Rome was going to look like for him. Does that make sense? Any parallels in our lives? I'll say yes, no question. But <laughs> and we, we think things are going to look a certain way in our own minds, and it's often different. But the, the Lord's plan is always better. All right, so I'm just doing a, a quick speed read for you. Verses 12 through 35 are in the province of God. Paul's nephew hears about a conspiracy of 40 men who decide we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. Okay. And so he tells Uncle Paul about it. Paul says, tell the commander. The commander hears about it and arranges for a very large military escort to get Paul to Caesarea safely. Okay? So put 11 together with that. Jesus had just said, I'm going to get you to Rome safely. And he uses human means like Roman soldiers, 200 Roman soldiers and 70 horsemen to get Paul at least step one to Caesarea on the way to Rome. And he's going to be safe. So God uses means to accomplish his purposes and he's using Gentile, non-believing Roman soldiers to fulfill what he's told Paul in 11. Does that make sense? So let's pick up the story in 24. He's now arrived in Caesarea. And so let's pick up 24. Somebody read 1 through 9. He's going to talk to Felix. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through, 
you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have <coughs> found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Okay, thank you. So after kind of doing some schmoozing uh, with Felix, Tertullus um, has some opening statements to say about Paul. What are some of the kinds of things he says are true about Paul? He's a plague. He's a plague. <laughs> Mine has, he's a real pest. So that's it started on a nice note. What else? Okay, that's suspicious sounding. What else? Starts riots. Starts riots. Okay, you're talking to a Roman governor. What do Roman governors want to see in their area? Not riots. Not riots. <laughs> so, okay, so he's a pest, he stirs up riots, and he's a ringleader of some crazy cult. Okay? Anything else he wants to compliment him on? Tried to desecrate the temple. Okay, so he's a religious crazy man. And basically just assumes you'll, you'll see... This guy is, is trouble, just like I said. And then all the other Jews there going, yeah, that's right, that's right, it's true. So stacking the deck, it's no neutrality and, you know, this person is alleged to have done such. It's like, he's a past, he did this, he did this. You'll see it, you know, deal with it. So uh, how much of that was true? Just per, rough percentage. Ruth, you said 20%. What, what part's always kind of true? He is a ringleader of the sect of... Well, okay. is the Nazarenes the Christians? Or is that a different thing? Well, they're called... I mean, that's a strange thing to call the Christians. I mean, Jesus was called the Nazarene. Mm-hmm. And usually in Acts, the Christians are called the way, or followers of the way. So that's mm-hmm. an unusual term for it. Not exactly... So... Is he talking about the Christians, or is he? Just I think that's what he means. Yeah, Jesus was Nazarene. They followed Jesus, so they're the Nazarenes. Yeah, so he um, is a kind of a ringleader. So, so okay, we'll give him twenty percent, um, but the rest is just n- no, <laughs> right? So, can you think of a verse that tells us we should not be surprised that people are going to say false things about us? about Matthew 5. Can somebody read Matthew 5, 11 and 12, please? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so Paul's living, verse 11, isn't he? 
then he is insulted. He's a he's a plague. It's kind of insulting. And they're persecuting him. They wanted to get rid of him. And it's all kinds of evil falsely. This is not true. And they're, so they're just made up charges, and they're trying to get rid of him. And Jesus says, "Rejoice in that situation." Which is John fifteen eighteen as well. What does that say, Katie? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Okay, good, good. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. In fact, First John will come around and say that again. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. So he basically quotes Jesus from John fifteen and. First John three something. Okay. So any comments or questions on false charges and how we respond to that? Okay, let's read ten through thirteen back in Acts. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Okay, thank you. So what does Paul point out first? Isn't he talking about the rioting charge? Yeah. And what did he say about it? most concern to the Roman authorities. Right. And what did he say about that? that? They have no case. Yeah. There's no evidence. They can't prove it. It's just uh, not real. He's going to keep going on that, but that is his initial thing. So the, first, the uh, prosecution said, he's this, 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 and this. And he's saying, you can't prove it. Let me tell you my side of the story and... You make a call. So would please somebody read 14 through 16. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Okay, thank you. So what does he have to say here? He gives it the proper name. Okay, I thought you would catch that. Yeah, so we're not called the Nazarenes, it's the way. And, you know, I'm guilty as charged on that. I do. I am part of that, sure. And what else does he at least affirm about where he's at? Worships the God of our fathers. Okay, good. In 16, it's like he's speaking the truth with trying not to offend, but he's, he has a conscience about what he's sharing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows that he has a good conscience about this testimony. He's not going to make up something. He's telling the truth. Well, they also they accuse him of profaning the temple, and he's saying that there's a lot of common ground right. between him and them. Right, like what? What are some of the common grounds? He's uh, saying having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that right. there will be resurrection. And he believes the law and the prophets. He's not anti-law or anti-prophets. He, he serves the God of the Father. So a lot of common ground or shared, shared goals. 
And then, let's keep going, 17 through 21. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. Okay, thank you. So here's Paul's account of what happened that day, just 12 days ago. And who does he call out and why? Asia. Right, and, and why, why does he mention them? The, the wrong prosecutors, mm-hmm. or the correct prosecutors, are not present. Right. So the ones that are present are only working off of hearsay. Very good. So here's 2,000 years ago, Roman law still basically had what we still have in our culture of you have the right to have your accusers present, right? That's a a real fundamental legal right. You can't just get, well, we heard this might have happened. It's like, I want the person who said I robbed that bank to tell, be here in the courtroom and say, I saw him rob the bank. I have that right. That's something that goes all the way back to Roman law, that you have the right to have your accusers present. And Paul's saying, you're not following things here the way you should be following. These guys should be here. They're not. So, just notice that, Felix. <laughs> Pay attention to what you're doing here. Um, and let's see what else we have on that. Anything else on that? Let's do 22 and 23. But Felix, <coughs> having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when... Lysias, the tribune, came down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Okay, so he puts the trial on hold, um, basically procrastinates on having to give a verdict. He wants a little more information. But isn't it interesting, it says he has some knowledge of the way. So... Heard about it. He's a Roman governor, but he's heard about the Christians and knows a little something about them. And then let's keep going and do 24 through 27. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So... 
What are some things Paul talks to Felix and Drusilla about? There's a baby name if you're looking, like, you guys aren't locked in yet. Drusilla, (laughs) really pops. Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> so four things are mentioned that Paul has the opportunity to talk to this governor and his wife about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. Good, and right before that, faith in Christ. So how does Paul react to those last three subjects? More of a reasoning. Or, wait, Paul, how does Paul? Or Felix. Oh, I'm sorry. How does Felix react when Paul talks about righteousness and self-control and judgment? Let's go away. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and he's alarmed. Why would he be alarmed? Because he's not living that way. Yeah. So, who wants... I mean, so again, just trying to put yourself in this situation. You're a Roman governor. You're not a Christian. You're not even a theist. You're a polytheist. Worshipping all you know, Jupiter and Mars and you know, who else they had in the Roman pantheon. And here's somebody talking about, there's a judgment to come. And God will, ju- you know, be based on righteousness. Do you, are you right in God's sight? And you know, who wants to hear that if that's not how you're living, right? It's like, yeah, Paul, great, let's talk about it. <laughs> so he sends them away, and then, again, this we get these little pieces. What is... Felix hoping Paul's going to come up with money. (laughs) But in spite of that, even though that money never happens and he does push him away, how often is he talking to Paul? For two years. (laughs) Right, for two years and quite often. Right? Quite often he he can't resist going back and saying, tell me more. I don't want to hear it, but tell me more. He's just conflicted him. I'm intrigued by this Jesus and what you have to say about this God, and it scares me, so I'll put you off again. And um, anybody remember the old hymn about um, not today or whatever? And it's kind of based on him, like I'll hear you another time. It's like, it seems like there's an old hymn about that. Anybody remember? There's almost persuaded, which is another. I think that's Festus. But um, the idea of just putting it off and don't put it off because it might be too late. All right. Um, So what does Felix end up doing with Paul after these little conversations they have? Just leaves them in jail. Okay. And how long did he stay there? Two years. Two years. So if you were a first century Christian and you heard Paul's in jail for two years... This great missionary who's been planting churches and writing letters that are now in the New Testament. What would your initial reaction be like? Paul's locked up for two years. Discouraged. Yeah. Because it seems rather pointless, doesn't it? That why is this great missionary evangelist stuck in a jail for two years when he could be out there serving the Lord? Um, so let's look at Philippians 1 and not sure it's this imprisonment but we, you know, Paul was in prison so many times it's hard to keep straight which is which 
But go to Philippians 1. And when somebody read 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So, again, not sure if it's this imprisonment, but at least on one of the imprisonments where you would think, oh, this is discouraging that our great champion Paul is locked up and not able to spread the gospel. Paul says, guess what? I am spreading the gospel in two ways. How is the gospel spreading even more with Paul locked up, at least in Philippians 1. So the other prisoners into the guards also. Yeah, so the people in jail themselves are hearing it, both the guards and the prisoners. And who else? What else is happening as a side effect? Somebody's got to come off the bench. Yeah, which is counterintuitive because you think, oh, preaching Christ gets you in jail? I would think that would be demotivating for a lot of people, right? Like, do I really want to preach Christ and end up like Paul? But in this case, it had the opposite effect in it. They were emboldened by Paul's courage, and so they're preaching without fear, even though they are very aware of the consequences could be, I could end up in jail like Paul. So two ways of looking at the exact same circumstance. Here's Paul in jail. That's discouraging. The gospel's on hold. And Paul's saying, no, it's not on hold. It's, hap- it's spreading in jail, and it's spreading beyond jail, outside. God is working in mysterious ways, even though it looks like this is a setback. So, um, who else was somebody who had an extra two years in prison that kind of got forgotten? Joseph. Joseph! Yeah, let's go to that. Genesis 40. Genesis 40, would somebody read 14? This is Joseph talking to the cupbearer. Remember, he's in jail. He interprets dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. And says what's going to happen, and now he tells the cupbearer, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Okay, so Joseph isn't like, I love staying here. (laughs) It's like, when you get out, because you will, because the dream I had will come true, because God gave it to me. You're going to be free, you're going to be back with Pharaoh. Put in a good word for me, remember me. Okay, so then read verse 23. That the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then the next, very next verse. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Okay. So specifically said, don't forget me, remember me. I forgot, didn't remember. Two years later, after Pharaoh was asleep, oh yeah, there's that guy in jail. What was his name? <laughs> um... So, what was God's purpose in that? I mean, wouldn't you be a little... Like, if you were Joseph, would you go, okay, 
I told him yesterday, so maybe today I'll hear from Pharaoh. Okay, it's been a couple days now. Maybe Pharaoh was busy, but today should be the day. Two years worth of, you know, your hash marks on your jail cell on the wall. No Pharaoh. No getting out of here, even though I want to get out of here. How would, how would you process that? Or, better yet, how do you process when God takes longer than we think he should for fill in the blank? I mean, we don't know. Joseph had a happy ending to his story. But, I mean, obviously, God's timetable and ours are different a lot of the time, aren't they? I mean, God sometimes does things sooner than we think he might. But, doesn't it seem like it takes longer than we think it might? More often than it takes less than we think. Shelly? Well, he had a, plan, a providential plan for his the brothers. And, you know, I mean, so maybe it's us remembering God's perfect timing and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts after Genesis 40, of course, with the famine and the brothers and. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that have to be in place and God's setting that up. But, yeah, to remember slash believe God knows what he's doing. God knows what's best. God's timing is always better than mine. Not just sometimes, always better than mine. And that's a fight of faith, isn't it? Because we get impatient and think, come on, Lord, don't look down, but this is kind of turning into a crisis here. Would you please intervene? And he doesn't do it on our schedule. Tom? Just the humility that God produces in us when he takes us through a really hard trial. Mm. You know, just stripping away all the garbage that that we are focused on. It's some of the good stuff, but it's not what he wants us focused on. He just does this humbling in our heart that's supernatural by his indwelling spirit. It's, you know, it's, when I got sick in 2015, it was a six-month period, but it felt like 20 years of Mm -hmm. sanctification jammed in six months. It's just amazing time. Hard, but amazing. Anyone else want to share about God's timing being different and his plans being different than ours? We're, we're usually wanting to return to comfort and returning to life without trouble is what our goal is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's what our timetable is connected to. And God just wants to give us himself. Mm-hmm. And so that's better than trouble or whatever else. And that's what his goal is. And yet our goal is how do I get out of trouble and head to comfort? And, and not that wanting to get out of trouble is necessarily bad, but it might not be the best. <laughs> I mean, obviously, God has, might have higher purposes than that. So it's not wrong to make our request known to God, Philippians 4, 6. Like, Lord, please get me out. <laughs> but the bottom line is, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So ultimately, I want what you want, and that might be six months of 20 years of <laughs> sanctification crammed in, which is intense. Or whatever it is in our lives, it's just waiting on God and, tr- and tr- the fight of faith to trust that what He has is better than what I'm think I'm asking for, including the comfort. <laughs> well, in Joseph's situation, 
the two years wasn't happening in a vacuum. He had already seen God being faithful through trial. Okay. Because his brothers wanted to kill him. Right. And then God intervened and sent him to Egypt with the slave traders. He could have got put in, you know, some sweatshop or whatever. <laughs> but he gets put in this cush, you know, man, you know, managing the household right. of an Egyptian official. Uh, God cared for him there. He gets thrown in jail. And again, he rises through the ranks. The the warden empowers him to puts him in a position of authority there in the jail. So, he, I mean, he already has a track record of God's faithfulness in difficult circumstances to to meditate on. Yeah, and strengthen your faith. So, great point. And that's something like you see with David. Um, remember when he's going to go up against Goliath, and Saul saying, "You can't do this." And he said, "The God who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from this." uncircumcised Philistine. So it's like, I'm looking at the track record I've had with God. I was up against a lion hand-to-hand combat. I I lived to tell about it. And a bear. And I've seen God in dangerous situations protect me and keep me safe. And so I'm trusting based on my prior experience with God's faithfulness, he's going to help me again in this situation. You know, Joseph can look back Paul can look back. All of us in the room who are believers can look back, even if you've only been a Christian a few weeks. <laughs> you, know, you can say, I've already seen God do this. And those are meant to fuel our faith and strengthen our faith for whatever the next thing is. Because there's always going to be a next thing, right? <laughs> it's not like, okay, we're done. No more trials. Guess what the no more trials is? Heaven. <laughs> this world is trial. And when that one, you get through that one, there's another one, and it's just going to be that way. But all those are amassing this track record with God of, he got me through this, he got me through that, he got me through that. And it, we can build on that. Tom, did you want to add? Just that in, we see a short window of Job's life, and yet at the beginning, it's said of him that he's upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And when God, through his providence, smites him, his reaction isn't a re- reaction of a man who hasn't already been through trials. Hmm. In my opinion. No, that's a, I have never thought of that before, Tom. That's a, you want to say more about that? Or? No, just the, you know, the more trials God ordains in our lives, the more humble we are, the more we trust in Him. You know, James 1, the purpose of it is that we that God builds endurance of our faith through those trials. Mm-hmm. And his reaction in chapter one is well, a man who's been through no trial. I think I wish I would have had that before, because that's what I'm going to preach on this morning. So, but so we know Job was old enough at least to have seven grown children. We don't know how old the daughters were, but the seven sons all have home, homes of their own. So he's got to be at least fifty-ish, right? Forties. So he's had enough life to have some trials. <laughs> and, yeah, you won't come up with the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, if you've never had a trial before. <laughs> so, that, that's a great insight. So, we should probably wrap up. But, um, Kyle, would you close us in prayer? <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather as a body of believers to look into your word to be blessed by your spirit, uh, to 
see the things, the wisdom uh, that your word contains, and to be encouraged. Even though we all face differing trials, and as Pastor said, those trials won't end uh, until we go to be with you. Uh, We have the encouragement, just as Paul had, that you are with us in those trials, that we can take courage in that. I pray that you would um, stay our hope on that fact. Lord, I pray that you would bless the time uh, of worship uh, to come and the message that you've uh, given the pastor. Uh, May all who hear it have ears to hear, and may your spirit be uh, active in everyone's hearts, uh, doing the work that you intend that word to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.